Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle Radio with me, Carlotta Rabello. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage here on Monocle Radio, with highlights from our studios at Midori House in London and also from around the world. This week, we mark 25 years of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. We were supposed to have a peace dividend so that young people in Northern Ireland could have the same opportunities as people in London or in Dublin. That's not come to fruition. We see that in our rates of poverty. Absolutely, the Good Friday Agreement brought us peace, but that really is all it has brought. Plus, fashion news, a look at the day jobs of artists, and we explore the Atacama Desert too. After an hour of nothing but earth and dust, the scenery outside began to change. We had entered the oasis of San Pedro de Atacama. In the midst of the driest, most hostile of places, little sanctuaries exist where water flows, trees grow, birds sing, and life flourishes. All that and much, much more over the next hour, right here on The Curator, with me, Carlotta Rabello. So welcome to The Curator. We started the week with the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. The peace deal brought an end to the Troubles, the decades-long violent conflict in Northern Ireland in which thousands of people were killed. On Monday's edition of the Monocle Daily, Andrew Muller spoke to Ifa Moore, a Dublin-based political journalist originally from Derry, to unpack the anniversary and the imminent arrival of US President Joe Biden to join the proceedings. Let's have a listen. Aoife, first of all, uh, there has been in Northern Ireland today, in Derry in particular, a couple of reminders of what the Good Friday Agreement was, well, what it hoped to do away with. Uh, There's been at least one police vehicle set fire to Mm -hmm. during what seems to be a demonstration by dissident Republicans. How big a thing has that been? It's um, sadly, it's quite a habit now. We see this every Easter and every summer. There are always small flashpoints of unrest um, and violence towards the police. They are a lot smaller now than they used to be. Um, But this is very common. We see it every year. Um, The Monday, Easter Monday, is usually the day the dissident Republican factions will have their March Easter. Um, It's obviously a very big holiday in Irish, or a special day in Irish Republicanism, um, where they um, remember those who fought for Irish freedom in 1916. So um, they have a march, the dissident Republicans have a march in Derry every Monday and every Monday, Easter Monday, we see this um, and it is mostly young people from the estate um, where I'm originally from in Craigan and it is usually, you know, stirred up um, by older men who then get the teenagers riled up and then pet bombs start flying. But I am happy to say it is a lot smaller than it used to be. Well, one of the reasons I think we can say it's a lot smaller than it used to be is the Good Friday Agreement, which everybody is reflecting on after 25 years. Uh, There's no short answer to this question, obviously, but... In the main, do you think it's fair to say that it has worked about as well as might reasonably have been hoped at the time? Well, you know, at the time, it was the impossible. You know, people very much saw the Good Friday Agreement as the cow jumping over the moon. (laughs) Um, We never thought that we would see true peace in Northern Ireland. And it might take another 25 years until we're in some state of normalcy. I think the political courage and leadership that the political leaders showed at the time is something that's desperately lacking in politics in Northern Ireland at the minute. I think the the thing we need to remember is it's a peace process and 
very much the Good Friday Agreement did what it was supposed to do, but the people who were supposed to come after were supposed to then continue the process. We were supposed to have a peace dividend so that young people in Northern Ireland could have the same opportunities as people in London or in Dublin. And that's not, you know, that's not come to fruition. We see that in our rates of poverty, child poverty, lack of opportunities, jobs, steady work. So absolutely, the Good Friday Agreement brought us peace. Um, but that really is all it has brought because the the opportunities that a peaceful society is supposed to have haven't materialized. I mean, that absence of leadership you're talking about is most painfully reflected in the current non-functioning state of the Northern Ireland Assembly at Stormont. Do you get any sense or is there any hope that the the combination of the 25th anniversary of Good Friday, the imminent uh, visit of US President Joe Biden, and indeed the also imminent visit uh, of Bill and Hillary Clinton might kind of coerce, even embarrass Northern Ireland's politicians in to getting their act back together? Well, I would like to point out that it's not Northern Ireland's politicians. It's one party that has Fair the point. issue and it is one party who is holding up Stormont. The DUP also, and I think it's worth remembering on this day, the DUP also did not support the Good Friday Agreement. So this 25th anniversary means nothing to them because they didn't support it at the time either. So the people, the politicians that I'm speaking to, they are very embarrassed. Um, they're embarrassed that Joe Biden is not coming to Stormont. He, uh, that he's going to the Ulster University. It's a whistle stop trip in the north, and then he will spend the remainder of his time, quite an extended visit, in the Republic. And it is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Um, but the wrong people are embarrassed. Um, and I think you know it is a very stark that the president um, of America can't, won't, or can't go to Stormont because Stormont is not sitting. Um, and when I talked about the lack of political leadership. Uh, in Northern Ireland, very much um, people are despairing at the DUP and, you know, their continual rejection of any Brexit legislation when it is very clear that this is the only legislation now they are going to get. Rishi Sunak has made that quite clear. There are no more deals on the table. They've been through three prime ministers at this stage. They've seen off um, Theresa May, Boris Johnson. Oh, actually, I forgot about Liz Jones. <laughs> didn't didn't anyway. we all... <laughs> and, and Rishi Sunak this is the end of the road for them and we have a council election coming up now in the north in May and I think the proof will be in the pudding then because as we have seen the DUP's popularity is on a road to nowhere because of this and uh, they are no longer the largest party in Northern Ireland but they are the only party who, are holding, who is holding Stormont to ransom uh, you mentioned Brexit there, and of course that was something Northern Ireland voted against, 56-44. Were you worried at the time, or were people in Northern Ireland worried at the time that Brexit could pro prove a, a jolt that the Good Friday Agreement couldn't cope with? Everyone in Northern Ireland, other than the DUP, were screaming at the top of their lungs that, the, that Brexit was not compatible with the Good Friday Agreement. We have a border with a European Union member state. We are the only country in Europe who has a border with a European member state. And we knew that this would create an issue. It was talked about it constantly in the north. It was talked about constantly in the south. The only place they seem not to be talking about it was in London. And... We have always known that, especially in Westminster, doesn't understand Northern Ireland, doesn't understand the people, and it doesn't understand Stormont. 
whether it's willful ignorance or otherwise. So it was a very, very clear to almost everyone in Northern Ireland that Brexit would not be compatible with the Good Friday Agreement. But now Northern Ireland has been taken out of the UK um, with or without or the European Union without their consent. Uh, and just finally, Aoife, I suspect even President Biden doesn't imagine that his visit uh, will occasion quite the excitement as, for example, Bill Clinton's visit to Derry in 1995 mm-hmm. did. But is it nevertheless still a big deal in Northern Ireland, even in terms of reassurance, uh, when the President of the United States comes to town to acknowledge the Good Friday Agreement? To be honest, and I don't want to be cynical, but to be honest, I think people in the North are so disheartened um, with ever that the state of politics at the minute and they know that Joe Biden's visit isn't going to you know push the DUP one way or the other they really have shown no real interest in the support of America um, whatsoever so I am a, a currently living in Dublin and you know it, the excitement here is is definitely noticeable you know there's a lot of secret service around Dublin everyone you know this is preparing now for the president's visits where in the north I just don't think People uh, have the same level of excitement, but people are so disenchanted with politics at the moment because of the storm and stalemate that I think it's hard for people to imagine that Joe Biden's visit is going to make any sort of a difference. You're listening to The Curator on Monocle Radio with me, Carlotta Rabello. One of the top stories that marked the week was the leak of classified documents in the United States. It included material relating to Ukraine's air defences, Israel's spy agency Mossad and much more. On Wednesday, we heard from Lou Lukens, who's a senior partner at Signum Global Advisors and a former U.S. diplomat. And we wanted to explore how the leak impacts U.S. diplomacy around the globe. Well, first of all, it's hard to say what they've revealed because there's clearly some misinformation as part of these leaks. So in other words, some of the documents that have been leaked appear to have been changed or altered. Um, What they've revealed is that, I mean, what appears to be the case is that some people on gaming chat rooms were having arguments or discussions about the war in Ukraine. And somebody thought he could prove his point or her point by providing these classified documents and seems to have taken pictures of them in a secure setting, probably in the Pentagon, I would imagine, and then you know put them out there for the world to see in these chat rooms. Um, clearly, the U.S. is still trying to do damage control and to figure out what was leaked exactly, what out there has been altered and is misinformation, and what is actually an accurate reflection of the documents. Um, but it's never a good thing when this kind of information and these kinds of documents are leaked because it puts the United States in a very difficult position with his allies. Um, and it also puts people's lives at risk. And it, it, the, the manner in which the leak was made, what you've just described there, may suggest that it might not have been a deliberate intent to harm anybody in this. It was just part of an internal chat. I mean, that, that creates even more of an embarrassment for the Pentagon, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, if this was, I mean, it's bad enough if it's a deliberate stealing of information and leak. But if it was more, I guess, sort of careless, you could say, in the sense that the person didn't really understand the consequences of what they were doing and was just trying to maybe show off to some friends that, look, I've got this very top secret information that you don't have. And, um, you know, that 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 raises real questions about the the kind of people who have access to to information in in the within the intelligence community and within the national security infrastructure in America and, and what kind of background checks those people are getting. 
So tell us a little bit about what these leaks do, firstly, to, to Ukraine's military plans, because there are bits of information there which reveal the plans that Ukraine has to mount a spring counteroffensive. This does nothing for Kiev, does it? It does nothing for Kiev, and, and it only helps Russia if you take all those documents at face value. And I think, you know, it, it is also possible, by the way, that the United States intelligence community is putting out there that there's a lot of false information amongst these documents as a way to confuse uh, Kiev's enemies who may be looking at these documents as they try to plan their spring offensive. So um, if Russia is unsure whether the information in these documents is accurate or not, they will maybe you know have a bit of a pause before they decide whether to act on it. Um, but clearly having that kind of information out there, internal deliberations between allies or with friends um, is, is not helpful at all. And it, 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 it makes our allies not trust us as much. And that's probably the greatest harm of these leaks. It's not just the United States, is it? That's, uh, the, sorry, it's not just Ukraine, which is the subject of these leaks. We've had leaks about um, areas to do the South Korea intelligence as well, haven't we? And and, and the fact is, it, it these are widespread problems for the United States now. Yeah, I mean, South Korea, um, interesting, in, interesting, you know, information in these leaks about Egypt. Um, it, it really sort of covers covers the globe and and which raises an interesting question of sort of again back to who got this information and where did it come from because it's not if it were all focused on one particular geographic area that might give um, the investigators a bit of an idea of which office or where it came from but the fact that it spans you know Ukraine South Korea and Egypt and all in other countries, I think makes it much more difficult to pin down the perpetrator in this part, in this, in this case. And indeed, I mean, if one of the leaks, which is German land forces cannot fill their, fulfill their NATO commitments. This means that every conversation that every diplomat is going to have in so many places is going to be a really awkward one. I mean, from the point of view of diplomacy, how do you go about making those contacts and, and sort of addressing the, the elephant in the room next time you have meetings? Well, again, we've gone through this cycle before, and and after WikiLeaks, it was a very difficult time for U.S. diplomats, and and a lot of um, people around the world, diplomats around the world, had call, had counterparts in foreign ministries and, and other you know places around the world, who would say point blank, why why should I trust you with this information? I trust you, but it obviously goes back. The information I give goes back to Washington, and then. Who knows who's going to have access to it? And it took a long time for the State Department to rebuild trust globally. And I think we're probably going to be facing a similar situation now where allies and partners around the world say, you know, we're, we're not so sure we want to share the most sensitive information with you the way we have been um, if if that information and my name possibly is going to become public. And what is your advice if you are, you know, as a former diplomat, do you just have to sort of hold up your hands and say, we are so sorry, we take responsibility for this? I mean, yes. I mean, that's the best approach is to, to is to acknowledge that it, it's a screw up on the part of the United States and we will try to do better and we will do better. Now, as we heard earlier, U.S. President Joe Biden has been on the road this week, along with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who, after stopping off in Belfast and Ireland with the president, headed for Vietnam and Japan. On the agenda in Tokyo is Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as Washington reaches out to its allies and countries in the global south for support countering Russia. Meanwhile, the Kremlin has been conducting its own charm offensive in Africa. Derek Chole is a counselor in the U.S. State Department and an advisor to the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. He's been talking to Monocle's U.S. editor, Chris Lord, about diplomacy on keeping countries on site. We've been trying to make the case strongly by showing up. And so you've seen, for example, in the last several months, 
a concerted effort on the part of the United States to be engaging with our partners in Africa, for example, about not just what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, but about our partnership, our, our uh, desire to uh, make uh, their, their countries more stable, stronger, more prosperous. So just most recently, the Vice President uh, Harris was there, but Secretary of State Blinken, uh, my boss, was recently in Africa. Uh, our ambassador to the UN was there, our administrator for USAID, to make the case and show up and talk about how we can better uh, work with them to address their needs. And is it, it is about that old-fashioned form of diplomacy, if you like. It's about showing up and being present on the ground. I mean, you look at Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, he goes from country to country telling the Russian narrative, especially in places like Africa, and has been doing that since the invasion began. I mean, I wonder, is this really a case of Russia having embassies, diplomats on the ground that Ukraine simply doesn't? A big part of this is a ground game. I mean, we have been determined to be more engaged in the world uh, than we had been over the last uh, many years here. And to be showing up matters a lot. Ukraine has been doing it as well. I mean, we had we just saw uh, just a few days ago, uh, Foreign Minister Kaleba in Brussels. Uh, I was with Secretary Blinken at NATO meetings. He was there. Minister Kaleba has been traveling quite a bit all around the world to make the case, and including in places like Africa, because I think it's really important for countries to not just hear the Russian narrative, I think we're seeing the balance of, of the world standing up for Ukraine. Um, that said, we acknowledge that there are countries that are, are deeply stressed by the war in terms of what it means for their own economies, their own food security. And we feel like it's very important for us to do whatever we can to address those concerns and help them mitigate the consequences of Russia's war. But I think it's also, we need to be very clear about where responsibility rests. This is a war of choice by Vladimir Putin. You mentioned about this idea of America being present in a way that it hasn't for some years. And I'm very interested in this idea because it's not just about the previous administration, which was a period where we saw, uh, you know, lots of ambassadorial posts not being filled, diplomats not being present in, in American interests in the way that they had been. I mean, you were, you know, in the Obama administration, a period of a great deal of uh, American soft power, diplomatic engagement yeah. being out and about. You know, I still look around and Still no ambassador in Rome, for example. You've got overseas missions in places like Niger that are perhaps not very well staffed. I just wonder if there is a crisis right now in the American Foreign Service. I, I think we are very aware that uh, the State Department needs to be modernized uh, to be fit for purpose for the 21st century. Uh, the State Department is not funded the way we think it should be. Uh, this is really going back decades now uh, when you, you know, compare what the State Department gets and what we spend on foreign assistance, for example, relative to what the military gets, it's very disproportionate. In every room we walk into, there is a, there's a desire to see uh, more of the United States. And that is a precious asset that we have. The world still sees the United States as a country that fundamentally wants to try to solve problems and is therefore looking to the United States for how to solve problems and for the ideas and the, and the, and the resources uh, and the innovations to help countries improve uh, the lives of their citizens and, and their security. He used to be the executive vice president of the German Marshall Fund, a think tank that's named after what was the Marshall Plan, which exactly. in a sense was almost, you could almost see some element of it being the original Belt and Road Initiative, and as much yes. as, of course, without the debt, but the sending of money, building infrastructure in Western Europe as a soft power tool to shore yes. up support against the Soviet Union. We don't really have a vision like that anymore, do we, where 
really there's that level of coordinated investment in countries around the world to say this is one worldview and we want you on side do we need something like that again the, the power disparity in the world is much different than it was uh in 1947 and 1948 i mean obviously there's there you know where post world war 2 you had basically the entire continent of europe and much of Asia on its back uh, after the devastation of World War II. And so right now, I think it's less about the United States uh, taking on the, the, the lion's share of the burden, a la the Marshall Plan, but galvanizing an effort and being a, a force multiplier, as they say in the Pentagon, to uh, bring other countries along with us. We're, we will do, more, more likely than not, we end up doing more than anyone else. But uh, there's a tremendous amount of, of resources and capability in the world that I think, but absent the United States, sometimes that doesn't get organized in the way it should. One of the key parts of American soft power is its free press. We see a Wall Street Journal reporter detained in Russia, Evan Gershkovich. I wonder how far the State Department is willing to go on bringing him back. Secretary Blinken has been clear that uh, what, what has uh, happened in the last week with this uh, detention, which he has said in his view, uh, is clearly an unlawful detention um, of a of a U.S. journalist uh, is completely unacceptable, uh, and he needs to be released immediately. And Secretary Blinken had an opportunity to tell that directly to the Russian foreign minister in a phone call just a few days ago. Given the context of where we are, I mean, does this feel like an escalation? I don't want to speculate right now on the motive here, other than other than uh, the fact is they've taken a journalist, put them behind bars, and that's completely unacceptable. We've been very engaged with uh, the Wall Street Journal about the situation. And again, we'll leave no stone unturned when it comes to getting his release, which we believe needs to happen immediately. This is The Curator. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. The Foreign Desk is Monocle Radio's weekly world affairs programme. We tackle the biggest global news stories as well as those too often left untold. I've been out on the streets of Lagos. People are unable to withdraw their cash. Fights have broken out in banking halls. As well as the occasional retelling of events from days long past. The gates opened and in came this horse, absolutely huge, made of wood. People were asking, you know, what's it for? Is it some kind of icon? Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. There were a lot of diplomatic efforts by NATO and NATO allies. We really made big efforts to convince Russia not to invade. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle Radio.
You're with the Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle Radio, and I'm Carlotta Ribello. On Thursday, we were joined by Dana Thomas, Monocle Radio regular and the author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. And she brought us the latest news from the sector. Michael Roberts was a dear friend, but more importantly, a very important fashion editor and illustrator, artist and, and writer for more than 50 years in the fashion business. He got his start in the late 1960s at the Times of London, the Sunday Times of London. And he, for about more than a decade, was the first fashion director of The New Yorker and did those charming covers that were collage and kind of humorous of fashion victims and fashion people on the covers. Like one of my favorites was a woman walking down the street and her blonde hair extensions was strangling a passerby. And uh, and he was sort of getting pulled off the sidewalk. And or another one was the Statue of Liberty being cinched up in a corset and her eyes bulging out like, wow, what's happening to me? He also assigned all the fashion coverage for the magazine and really gave it a lot of zip and, and oomph. And after that, he went to Vanity Fair and was a style director at Vanity Fair for a long time. Um, you've written about um, Michael Roberts quite a lot. And, and the fact was that this irreverence was something that he absolutely um, excelled at, not just because he was brilliant at doing it itself, but not everybody noticed what he was doing. No, he was very good at poking fun at people in fashion without them knowing that he, they were, he was being poking fun at it. It was very deft, very and very sharp, but but at this, you know, he could kill you and you didn't even know you got killed. He wrote the introduction for, a, for um, a, a well-known fashion person's coffee table book. And when I read it, I went and had lunch with him in London. We would always go to, um, to the Colbert and Sloan Square. And I went and had lunch with him. I said, that Pete, that, that introduction you wrote for that book about this person, it's so mean. He said, I know. And he didn't realize it. He thought it was wonderful and he loves it. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you crazy fun that you could just take them out and they don't even realize they're being take down, taken out. He had he had a really deft touch to it. And uh, and it was, you know, and we we called him Mr. Snippy. And it wasn't simply because of his collage and his little sharp scissors cutting out cut, little paper cutouts for collage. He also could cut you and you didn't know it. Could Tell us a little bit about where we will see his influences now in fashion. Well, I just saw a cover of, um, what was it, The New Yorker this week that was very Michael Roberts' eyes. You know, he, style, he was, um, he did a lot of work with bold colors and collage, but also illustration and painting. And he had a lot of African and, uh, a lot of African influences, and he used a lot of people of color in his drawings and paintings and collage in a way that in long before it was a thing to be doing. And I felt like one of his muses was uh, Josephine Baker, like that he would use a Josephine Baker-like character for his his lead character. And you see it now all over the place with the movement for more BIPOC in everything. But Michael was doing this 25 years ago, and it and it's and it felt absolutely right and on point. So, if you really wanted to to discover um, Michael Roberts, you would you would look where a it is the the, the covers of his, oh, he his magazines, but books, but fil- books and films as well. He did children's books. He did photo books. He did two beautiful photo books of Sicily where he lived and where he died in Taormina He uh, at 75. He did um, the there's a collection of his New Yorker and other covers called Mr. Snippy. 
And uh, and he did these wonderful children's books like ABC Jungle and The Snowman in Paradise, which is hilarious. And a trio of books about Grace Codding, uh, inspired by Grace Coddington called Ginger Nuts about a an orangutan from Borneo who becomes a, a fashion model and then a fashion editor. Brilliant. Now, about 45 million Americans claim Irish ancestry, almost 10 times the population of Ireland. This is especially true of US presidents, from John F. Kennedy onwards. Andrew Muller explains why on this week's Foreign Desk Explainer. The island that is silent now, but the still haunt the waves. As the least attentive observer of American politics will be wearily aware, US President Joe Biden considers himself extremely Irish. Talks about it a lot, quotes Seamus Heaney in speeches, and gave it both barrels last December when garlanding U2 with the Kennedy Center honors. My colleagues up in the United States Senate used to kid me because I was quoting Irish poets on the floor. They thought I did it because I was Irish. That's not the reason. I did it because they're the best poets in the world. <laughs> he has never quite rolled up a sleeve to reveal an arm wreathed in shamrock tattoos, but it would not be entirely surprising if he did. President Biden will be spending much of this week in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, his itinerary apparently largely dictated by ancestral roots. He will visit Carlingford in County Louth and Ballina in County Mayo, from where the Bluets and the Finnegans, who became the Bidens, respectively hailed. In the latter settlement, Biden is due to be presented with a brick chiselled from a wall of the remnants of the home of his forebears. Oh, do Irish people love them back there. It's, it's, it's going to be fabulous when he comes to Ireland. It's for the whole, like for the whole country and for the, for the town of Alan it will be serious. Biden is scarcely unique among his fellow Americans in not only claiming Irish ancestry, but flaunting it as a key signifier of his identity. Because so many Americans do this, roughly a tenth of the population by some estimates, so do many American politicians. But how Irish is President Biden? If we're being picky, not very. His nearest direct Irish ancestors are a couple of great-great-grandfathers who left Ireland as many people were forced to during the Great Famine of the 1840s and 1850s. To put that into some sort of perspective, this makes Biden approximately half the Irishman as the narrator of this explainer. And if I banged on about this distant connection with the frequency Biden does, people especially actual Irish people, might well conclude that I was some sort of posturing ninny. Honestly, it's one rule for foreign affairs podcast hosts and another for presidents of the United States. The first US president to visit Ireland was John F. Kennedy, whose claims on the title of Irishman were reasonably solid. All of his grandparents, though American-born, were children of Irish immigrants. Kennedy's visit to Ireland in 1963, including a pilgrimage to an ancestral home in County Wexford, was a colossal deal. When Air Force One landed at Dublin Airport, JFK was greeted by Ireland's interminably serving president, the former militia commander and veteran of the Easter Rising, Eamon de Valera, born in New York 80 years previously. The young Irish-American leader was welcomed by the old American-Irish one. Mr. President, I have thought it fitting that my first words of welcome to you 
should be in our native language, the language of your ancestors. Since then, the Fossick in family records for some connection to Ireland has become a rite of passage for American presidents. Richard Nixon visited the Quaker burial ground in County Kildare, which serves as the eternal repose for his maternal Millhouse family. Ronald Reagan visited Ballyporeen in County Tipperary, where one of his great-grandfathers had been born. Although, ironically, when first seeking the presidency in 1980, Reagan had hushed up his Irish roots for fear of irritating conservative voters. It was only 20 years since Kennedy's Catholicism had been seen in some seething circles as a genuine election issue. Kennedy had felt it necessary to state starkly that he would not be taking instructions from the Pope. So it is apparently necessary for me to state once again, not what kind of church I believe in, for that should be important only to me, but what kind of America I believe in. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. Bill Clinton was a repeat visitor, especially before and after the Good Friday Agreement, whose 25th anniversary is being commemorated this week. The Good Friday Agreement was indeed partially wrangled with American diplomatic muscle, but it is also arguable that the Northern Irish conflict the Good Friday Agreement was designed to end was prolonged, encouraged and or exacerbated by the sentimental indulgence of Irish Americans whose understanding of the Troubles was gleaned substantially from the greatest hits of the Wolf Tones. Clinton had no Irish ancestry to speak of, though this did not stop him speaking of it. I am proud to be of Ulster Scott's stock. I am proud to be also of Irish stock. I share these roots with millions and millions of Americans. Whose votes he would be seeking the following year. George W. Bush received, for a variety of reasons, a reception not comparable to that accorded to certain of his predecessors. And no doubt you will be welcomed by our political leaders. Unfortunately, the majority of our public do not welcome your visit because they're angry over Iraq, they're angry over Abu Ghraib. Are you bothered by what Irish people think? Listen, I, I, I hope the Irish people understand the great values of our country. Barack Obama did the pint of Guinness in a pub bit and visited Moneygall in County Offaly, birthplace of a maternal great-great-great-grandfather and still home to, apparently, an eighth cousin, though there has to be at least an even chance that anybody listening to this is an eighth cousin of Barack Obama or indeed of anybody else they can think of. Obama's visit prompted any number of headlines, inserting an apostrophe between the O and B in his surname and the renaming of a nearby motorway services, now resplendent as Barack Obama Plaza. A hit song was composed in his honour. And he was, at least, upfront about the political uses of American Irishness. It turns out that uh, people take a lot of interest in you when you're running for president. They check out your place of birth. I do wish somebody had provided me all this evidence earlier because it would have come in handy back when I was first running 
in my hometown of Chicago. Because Chicago is the Irish capital of the Midwest. Donald Trump visited his own golf course. Depending on when you listen to this, Joe Biden is either about to trowel on the Irish shtick with abandon or has already done so. It probably can't do any harm, in general, or to his chances of re-election. But Ireland and the United States are no longer quite what they once were to each other. Ireland is not the country that was awestruck by Kennedy, the Irish writer Fintan O'Toole in his tremendous recent book We Don't Know Ourselves notes that JFK's arrival in 1963 coincided almost exactly with the unveiling of Ireland's first escalator. And American politics, especially American democratic politics, is no longer so completely enthralled to the Irish political machines which once dominated New York, Chicago, Boston and San Francisco. Nevertheless, it will be a while yet before anyone seeking the presidency of the United States does not engage genealogists desperately hoping to discover an Irish tombstone they can plausibly visit. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. You're with the curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle Radio with me, Carlotta Rabello. Now, for many budding creative types, being tethered to a day job is a sign of not having made it in your chosen discipline. But what if the relationship between artists and their day jobs is more complicated than that? On this week's edition of Monocle on Culture, Robert Bound and the team explored this dynamic by heading to an unusual exhibition in Texas on the topic. Let's hear a highlight. I didn't study art. I came into it through advertising and marketing. I studied history. Right. I've always really liked visual art, but it wasn't my dream necessarily. Yeah. And it's funny because I met people working at Tate and sometimes would meet people who didn't work there who'd be like, that's my dream. My only dream is to work at yeah. Tate. And I'd be like, oh God, I feel a bit bad because <laughs> I really love it. But, it, you know, it wasn't my passion. And I think perhaps coming in with that outsider's perspective, the art world is mad you can see where you it's can see the mad. you can see where the kind of the reality you can see yeah. where the smoke and the mirrors lie in the art yeah. world. Yeah, and I think there's a particular to me there's something particularly funny about. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I, as a comedian, what I'm always doing, I think, is looking for funny things. Yeah, that's just how I operate in the world. <laughs> yeah, just constantly like that trying... works for the rest of us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, sometimes to my detriment, but you know, constantly trying to notice like because I do character comedy as well, so it'll be like people's traits. Mm-hmm. So a funny turn of phrase someone has, a weird like inflection, a funny mannerism, or just like little, at the moment, I'm pretending to be lots of objects. That's the yes. show that I'm writing. So even just weird things. So I think the art world, particularly like public sector art, there's this amazing and very funny clash of the sort of pretentiousness and glamour and self-seriousness maybe of the private art world and of a lot of contemporary artists, not all of them. <laughs> Some of them are very funny and lovely and chill. Kathy um, is making the sound of an asterisk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Not please don't come after me. And then the kind of chaos of the public sector and the underfunding, and it's just funny watching those butt heads in the same institution in the same space. And you know, like the Tates will host like fashion week parties, but then also, you know, you can't. Yeah, budget for food at a gallery opening or whatever. Exactly. It's, it's, it's kind the of good a weird... news is the drinks at the opening are going to be Tizer. Yeah, exactly. Going to be a nice, refreshing glass of tap. You water. get a lot of um, okay. cheese straws. Yeah, and so is it simplistic to say, Kathy, that 
that there is a section on the manure dictaphone, which mm. is simply things you've noticed that day in the office? Or is it a more subtle kind of vibe report that your comedy begs, steals and borrows from yeah. your day job? I mean, are you finding it individual instances? And I think of... it can be both. Yeah. I think the funny thing was when I was working at Tate, I didn't do that much material about it. And not even on purpose, but I think there was something holding me back a bit. And then it was only when I left that I started doing like those videos about <laughs> living with contemporary artists. You're promising and... me that's not your self-preservation. <laughs> I know. Who knows? <laughs> but I also had for a bit, I did like, I had a contemporary art gallery label that I would like, I made up one that I would read yeah. out, which is all, you know, ridiculous. <laughs> I just love how they're written. That to me is also so funny, the way that art gallery labels are written. Oh. So give us, a, give us an example. Oh, it's all the like, what was it? It was like the materials are like perspex, potatoes, <laughs> pierced blood and cum. Yeah. Like, and it's this very serious bit about like this group of artists who like live. Seaman artist zone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. I think that's the thing is it, it maybe is just that self-seriousness of there's a lot of really, really funny, silly stuff in art. And there's a lot of very funny, silly artists. Mm. You have people like David Shrigley who are... Like He's a funny man. Comedians, yeah, basically. Yeah. But there's a lot of very funny stuff that people take so seriously, which is kind of like when you're in a school assembly and you're not allowed to laugh and you're like, oh, but come on. This is we've, been, we've certainly been there. Yeah. We've been there. And I mean, it's having that sort of job and, and having a job that's in that world that occasionally po-faced, but often fascinating mm. and, you know, enlivening kind of day yeah. job. It's a wonderful one to riff off because a lot of comedy that riffs off the drudgery of work, doesn't mm. it? So it's The Office or it's, you mm. know, it's it's all these classic things. So you're you're kind of riffing on the the sort of beguiling madness of, of some of your day job, I suppose. Yeah. And I think... It's, I, it's quite tender, your I lampooning hope, of it. Good, because I hope, because yeah. I, I love it. I think that's my favourite kind of comedy as well is is a sort of, I guess, a gentle piss-taking that kind of comes from a place of love. And I don't like mean comedy. (laughs) And I just think there's something about, in a more general sense, I suppose, about just being in a creative environment with creative people, even if it's not in the same medium, that is so inspiring. And I think visual art in particular, I was thinking about this on the way here, that it's, it's almost like one of the purest types of creativity because as a comedian, you're sort of completely beholden to the audience response and you're just kind of desperately trying to please and even if you think something's hilarious if but you, you can sort it, of edit on the go can't you if, you, yeah. if someone if you're losing them a bit you can reach out to them a little bit more well, but, whereas I mean, an artwork just has to sit there and do what it well, was decided was done two years ago or well exactly and I suppose that's what I mean like I'm constantly that's one of the things I love about comedy but you're constantly trying to read the room and, and work out like what do you want yeah. <laughs> is it this okay no is it this Whereas visual artists, it's kind of amazing to watch contemporary artists work because they're just like, this is it. This is my idea. This is how I want it to look. This is what I want to say. And then it's kind of a curiosity how people respond, but they're not necessarily trying to elicit Mm -hmm. a particular response. So there's kind of a very... And they don't want to explain it. No, well, no, often they don't. Time now for a snippet from our newest travel show, The Concierge. Nestled between the Andes mountain range and the Pacific Ocean is Chile's Atacama Desert. It is arid and remote, but for tourists looking for a holiday off the beaten track, it offers vast starry skies, unique wildlife and stunning rugged landscapes. Monaco's Gaia Lutz explored this unusual holiday destination that should be on your bucket list. The 4x4 Ford van was waiting for me at the airport. 
After a two-hour flight from Santiago, I had finally arrived at Calama, a mining town at over 2,000 meters above sea level and my starting point into the Atacama Desert. Out of the window, a seemingly infinite stretch of ochre earth and rocks. Up above, a blue sky with not a single cloud in sight. Save the polar regions, this is the driest place on Earth, with an average precipitation of less than one millimeter annually. The Atacama is also the highest desert in the world. The car brushed up clouds of red dust, and the road ahead shimmered under the scorching sun. At the far, far distance, you could just make out the snow-capped mountains of the Andes, the midday sun being too bright to give them proper contours. In this vast, arid expanse, the only thing crystal clear was the line where the brownish-reddish earth met the light blue sky. After an hour of nothing but earth and dust, the scenery outside began to change. We had entered the oasis of San Pedro de Atacama. In the midst of the driest, most hostile of places, little sanctuaries exist where water flows, trees grow, birds sing, and life flourishes. Atacameños have settled in the small village of San Pedro with its simple houses made of clay for centuries, growing crops like maize and herding llamas. Today, tourism runs the show here, with every house we pass by being either a hostel, restaurant, bar, or souvenir shop with alpaca wool sweaters hanging up front. The Explorer Hotel is a little further outside town, a low-slung building that accompanies the stretch of the horizon. Inside our room, there's no TV or any tech gadgets in sight. The simple yet elegant style plays into the whole ethos of Explora, and is what its founder, Pedro Ibanez, calls the luxury of the essential. To have only those things that are necessary to live in far-flung areas, adverse climates, or in demanding conditions. It makes sense. No one comes all the way to the Atacama, a region as remote as it gets, nestled between the Andes and the Pacific Ocean, for emails and telly, after all. The hotel guests here are properly geared up for adventures. And the real draw of this particular travel experience is not having to do any of the logistics yourself. Every evening, guides and guests meet in one of the hotel's common areas to plan the day ahead. As I find out, these deserts are filled with wildlife. On this trip alone, I saw all four of the six camelids that exist. Llamas, alpacas, vicuñas, and guanacos, peacefully grazing, as well as viscachas, a rather cute rodent that's somewhere between a rabbit and a squirrel, taking shelter from the sun. Evenings here are spent debriefing the day's activities with other hotel guests over pisco sours, and every morning spent chewing on coca leaves for the hangover as you keep the days full of cycling, horseback riding, walking, walking, and more walking. Bye. The most impressive thing of this part of the world, I find, is watching the landscapes shift dramatically. 
from Mars-like deserts filled with canyons to expanses of green shrubs crisscrossed by gurgling streams or potent geysers. Through it all, everything is a reminder of the Earth's visceral forces. Looking onto undulating lava fields, one can understand why Atacameños and their ancestors have looked up at Licancabur, the imposing, omnipresent volcano I viewed every day and asked for its protection. My last evening was spent stargazing. Come nighttime, the remoteness of the region and the arid desert atmosphere are a lucky combination of factors that make this one of the best places in the whole world to look up at the heavens above. Never mind, I may have fallen asleep as I lay on the ground gazing up at the sky. It's a truly spectacular and unforgettable way to end the trip. From Monaco, in the Atacama Desert, I'm Gaia Lutz. And finally today, we take a trip down a historical trade route where the driving conditions are often as extreme and wild as the surrounding landscape. Our contributor, Jessica Bridger, reports for Tall Stories. It is late. You're in the Caucasus, traveling in an imported 2003 Mitsubishi Delica, which still has Japanese-labeled diagrams warning you to wear seatbelts. Your driver, Georgie, is telling you that the huge tankers quickly passing you in the narrow mountain highway are carrying LNG and other flammables. They're allowed to cross the border freely, unlike the kilometers of regular trucks lined up and waiting to enter Russia. You are on the Georgian Military Highway. The LNG trucks appear from behind, their cabs strung with Christmas lights and neon signs. They toot their horns cheerfully as they pull beside and then past. The Georgian Military Highway is a deeply wild stretch of mostly asphalt, marked as E-117 on the maps, stretching some 160 kilometers north from Tbilisi to the Russian border. It is a major trade and transport conduit through the Caucasus Mountains, and it has the traffic and history to show it. Records of the road go back to Greek and Roman times as an important trade route in a world which was far more globalized than we often think. Like many mountain passes, it was a conduit for commerce and invasions. The Mongols came through in the 13th century, merely one group of many who sought to tame the Caucasus. As the tides of power ebbed and flowed over the centuries, the road was widened, improved, and kept pace with the needs of the powers that were to move troops and equipment over the Javari Pass at 2,400 meters and through the starkly stunning mountain landscape. Roads are emphatically political, and border roads in the mountains are perhaps the perfect distillation of the power of mobility. Months later, your partner says, remember how we got on the road? First there was one truck by the side, then you pass 10, then you realize for so many kilometers the north side of the road is lined with trucks, waiting? It is strange to see something that you think of as embodying movement standing still. Hundreds of trucks do indeed snake slowly up the road, moving and pausing, over the pass and then the border. It is tempting to conclude that this has something to do with the Russian-Ukrainian war, with sanctions. But the line has long been part of this crossing, the Russian border far less porous than the Georgian one. And so, the waiting. 
you get used to the trucks, the ad hoc homemade signed outposts that have sprung up along the way to serve the drivers, groceries, bathrooms, cafes. And in fact, you stop at one, which your driver Georgie swears has the best Kinkali dumplings. And the little pillows of dough covered meat are indeed delicious. Advertisements from the turn of the century, the 21st, and a faded promotional calendar are the only decoration in the restaurant. A table of four Uzbeki drivers play cards, waiting their turn to continue snaking north to the border. The road is in okay condition, worn a little worrisomely in places, but serviceable. Narrow, but not narrow enough to prevent high-speed Tetris-style passing when there's traffic, because that's how it's done. Cars and trucks travel mere meters apart, and cars pull halfway out into the opposite lane to pass, assisted by meaningful brake light code from the truck in front, and finally zip past that truck and settle in between it and the next one. It is, to choose one adjective, terrifying. But like many scary things, you quickly acclimate and start reading license plate origins instead. Armenia, Azerbaijan, Turkey, Uzbekistan, Russia, and even some with blue backgrounded yellow stars. The sanctions aren't totalizing and some goods do flow through legally to the EU. It is rare these days to feel that you're on an adventure while traveling, but that's exactly what moving along the Georgian military highway brings. Maybe it is the clearly risky driving conditions, the obvious rural poverty interspersed with recent ambitious development, including the Gudari Ski Resort, and the sense that this is a global conduit without the slick global airport feeling or even guardrails in good condition. You never forget you're heading north toward Georgia's big historical bad neighbor in what is truly a fraught neighborhood. Russia occupied and oppressed Georgia over the centuries, yet somehow the country retained its own strong identity, language, alphabet, and perhaps the very mountains you travel helped. When there's only one main road through four and 5,000 meter peaks, there's only so much that domination can squelch. Even if you make significant improvements to the road itself, as the Russians did consistently starting in the 18th century. The road also supports alternate histories, and the spectacular 1983 Soviet-built Russian-Georgian Friendship Monument is a tour de force of the genre. Standing proud in illustrated splendor, perched overlooking a gorge. Finally, you get in late at night, the journey ending 10 kilometers short of the Russian border at the Rooms Hotel Kazbegi, an amazing five-star, creative, independent property with excellent food and even better music in a truly unusual, nearly incongruous location. The 5,000-meter Mount Kazbegi, a dormant volcano, presides over this strange setting. The next day, you continue to see the border station at Verkhny Lars. It is quiet, awaiting the next wave of trucks allowed to pass. You're warned off getting too close on foot by a friendly Georgian border guard and settle for taking a look in the cafeteria and convenience store. The Georgian military highway has millennia of history encrusted and visible like man-made geological layers along the road. But now it turns a new page the new Kishveti Kobe 22-kilometer stretch will include six bridges and five tunnels, reducing travel by at least 40 minutes, cutting out some of the most grueling road sections and traversing under the Javari Pass. 
worries that this kind of work might make the unfriendly North a little too eager to be friendly are rife. Regardless, roads, like other big infrastructure, have a way of rendering human history small and incidental as they endure for centuries and even millennia. While this project is financed primarily by the European Bank for Development and Reconstruction and the Asian Development Bank, the construction sites visible along the road are clearly run by the China Railway Tunnel Group, proudly touting their logos for the world to see. CRTG is heavily associated with the Chinese-led Belt and Road Initiative, perhaps the grandest connective infrastructure project the world has ever seen. The Caucasus have always been a global pinch point, and the Georgian military highway, then and now, is a clear way through. When you travel back down toward Tbilisi in daylight, you feel the weight of things and watch somewhat stunned as you wind through the Caucasus. The human scale and concern seem small and inconsequential. You are moving through extreme landforms amid mountains, gorges, rivers, ice caves, a sublime, harsh conduit and lesson in the human need to move, to explore, to exchange, to dominate, for better or for worse. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced and presented by me, Carlotta Rubello, and edited by Sam MP. And join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle Radio. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. (laughs) 